morning again, church. In case you weren't here for the first few minutes, my name is Sean. I'm one of the pastors here at North Sub. And it really is good to see each one of you here with us today. Um, you know, we're a church that believes strongly in um, what it means to be the body of Christ and what it means to have membership here. It's not like having a gym membership where you show up maybe once in a while, pop in your headphones and ignore everyone around you. But it's a membership that means something. And, and we really get something from being together, from being the body. We get to hear joyful noises to the Lord through the clanging and clashing of percussion instruments first thing in the morning with the kids during family carol sing. We get to sing together. And there's a, a real glory given to God through the corporate nature of our singing. We get to pray over one another, exhort one another. We get to really worship with one another. So we're grateful for each one of you being here. Um, will you pray with me before we begin our message today? Heavenly Father, you are good and you are great. And you love us like no one else can. You pour out your great mercy upon us. And we pray that you would keep our hearts clean, that we may perfectly honor and worship you. Give us the, the power to love you better than we do and to magnify your holy name. We pray for your glory to be revealed, however you will it, in Jesus' name, amen. Anyone ever play the game with the most famous plumber in it, Mario? Yeah. Uh, my favorite one growing up is this one, Super Mario Brothers. Uh, in this game, the skilled plumber races through the Mushroom Kingdom in order to save Princess Peach from the dreaded Bowser. Avoiding shooting fire, holes in the ground, and walking Goombas, which if you don't know, this is a Goomba. It's a Goomba. Can be treacherous work, avoiding all of these pitfalls. So you're always on the lookout for a, a one-up. This power uh, that came from a mushroom that would give you an extra life to extend your gameplay should you meet some dreadful end. So inevitably, when you were hit by some fireball or Bowser's tail just barely touched you, the death you experienced wasn't as big of a hit because you could just start over with your one-up. Unfortunately for us, there's no known redo in this life. When the fireballs and the Goombas and the Bowers of this, Bowsers of this world take our life, that's it. And though humans have strived to push back death and prevent it as much as possible, we have not really found a one-up solution to the biggest problem in life, death. Would you turn to me, turn with me to John chapter 11. If you're using the Bibles in the sanctuary, uh, you can turn to page 953. Our series is titled, The One and Only Son where we've been looking at the seven signs and seven I am statements of Jesus. Each week we look at how Jesus revealed um, himself through a miracle and performed, uh, a miracle he performed, or a metaphor that he used to describe himself. Usually our, our uh, sermons cover either a sign or a statement, but today we're going to look at both a sign and a statement. So what that means is there's going to be a lot of text to go through. You're going to want to follow along in your Bibles, John chapter 11 where we see Jesus' response to the death of a friend whom he loved. 
We'll be starting with the glory of God, followed by the promise of God, the sting of death, and then the reality of life. So starting with the glory of God. Read with me in verse 1. Now a sick man, Lazarus from Bethany, the village of Mary, and from the village of Mary, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. Mary was the one who was anointed, or who anointed the Lord with perfume, and wiped his feet with her hair. And it was her brother Lazarus who was sick. So the sisters sent a message to him, Lord, the one you love is sick. When Jesus heard it, he said, This sickness will not end in death, but is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha, his, her sister, and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Then after that, he said to the disciples, let's go to Judea, Judea again. Rabbi, the disciples told him, just now the Jews tried to stone you, and you're going again? Aren't there 12 hours in a day, Jesus answered. If anyone walks during the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks during the night, he does stumble because the light is not in him. He said this, and then he told them, our, friends La our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am on my way to wake him up. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will get well. Jesus, however, was speaking about the death, but they were speaking, or they thought he was speaking about natural sleep. So Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. I'm glad for you I wasn't there so that you may believe, but let's go to him. Then Thomas, called twin, said to his fellow disciples, let's go too, so that we may die with him. So right off the bat, we're told that this is the familiar Mary and Martha. The Mary and Martha, his, re his readers probably would have already known. John assumes that his readers have already heard this story that he wrote in chapter 12 where he uh, explained how Mary poured perfume on Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, even before he narrates the event. This is the same Martha and Mary that welcomed Jesus uh, in dramatically different ways as well in Luke chapter 10. Mary by sitting at the feet of Jesus and Martha distracted with much serving. Remember these roles as we continue to read the story. But this is a family that Jesus is well acquainted with. And we're told from the sisters, that Jesus has a deep relationship with Lazarus because he loves him. One might expect Jesus then to jump on the occasion to heal someone he loves, right? After all, he healed perfectly uh, fine strangers, people that he didn't even know. So when we read his response, we might be taken aback because he says this won't end in death, but will be for God's glory. And in case it wasn't obvious, John continues to spell it out for us. Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. What? How is that possible? Because I'm left after a passage like this, scratching my head, seeming to think if he loves these people so much so that John already is explaining it to us multiple times in just a couple verses, why would he wait two days? You see that? Why would he wait two days before leaving if he loves these people so much? The sisters would not have sent word to Jesus unless this was something serious. You know, they didn't text him. They didn't send him a Snapchat. This was a big deal to send word to Jesus. And Jesus loves them. 
five verses in, and that's been said twice. So why is he waiting? This may be a question that many of us have had to wrestle with in our lives. Ever experienced that? That God would act in a way that didn't quite make sense to us? Ever have a prayer that was answered, but answered in a way that you weren't expecting? Maybe you're still waiting on that prayer to be answered. And you're wondering, what's the holdup, God? God, I've been pleading with you. I, I sent you word. Haven't you fixed this already? Perhaps our limited perspective makes it difficult to understand how our current sickness might be for the glory of God. The sisters at this point have a sense of urgency, but what they don't know yet is that they're going to experience the glory of God. So two days later, Jesus says, all right, let's go to Judea. But the disciples remind him that a tent was made on his life. And this is probably referring to chapter 10, verse 31, where the Jews picked up stones in order to murder him. But Jesus has an interesting response to this, to this question. Why would we go if an attempt was already made at your life? And he says this. He starts talking about how many hours are in a day. And if you walk in the day, you'll be fine. You see, work back then was dictated by daylight hours. If the sun was up, you could see, so you could work. But if the sun was down, you had to stop until the following day. Now, there's two possible meanings behind why Jesus is bringing this up. One possibility is that he could be alluding to the fact that Jesus' work is not over. The daylight hours, so to speak, of his ministry are still happening. It's not finished yet, so they will be safe. Another possibility is that since his disciples are walking with him, and he is the light of the world, as we saw in chapter 8, the disciples have nothing to fear so long as they're with him. Now, both of these are true, and neither of these change the outcome. Jesus heads on to wake his sleeping friend. And again, the disciples have a question. Okay, we thought he was sick, really sick, leading to death, and you're saying he's asleep. So if he's asleep, he's going to get better, right? But the sleep that Jesus is referring to is the same kind of sleep that we see in the Old Testament. Here's a couple examples. First King and in Daniel, where death is occasionally depicted as a deep sleep from which one can be awakened from later on. And Jesus clarifies for them because it doesn't seem to be clear. He says, Lazarus has died, and I'm glad for you that I wasn't there so that you may believe. Now, this is a striking statement to make, even at face value. But John thought it was important enough to remind us that Jesus loved this Lazarus and that his family was loved as well, twice before he says this to, this to the disciples. I think that this shows us just how important it is to Jesus that um, they focus on the faith of the disciples, how important the faith of the disciples is to Jesus. Their faith is even, in this instant, more important than the suffering of people that he loves. So he leaves them waiting. You ever feel like you're waiting for God to move? You can't imagine why he's allowing this discomfort 
that you're experiencing to be prolonged? Why he's allowing the suffer to continue, suffering to continue? Now we have the luxury of knowing how this story ends, but the people in this story did not. How frustrating it must have been to be thinking, we gotta go, Jesus, this man needs you. And he responds, I'm glad I'm not there. How much harder is it to really trust God's plan when we don't see his glory yet revealed in our lives? How much more so must we remind ourselves of what God has already done for his glory? For surely he'll continue to be faithful. Amen. Well, Jesus has the support, at least the support of one disciple, Thomas. The same Thomas who's famously known for doubting in John chapter 20 here seems to show a display of courage and devotion, albeit maybe a little misguided. He says, let's go die too. But it works, and they move on. They're about to witness Jesus make an amazing promise in our next section, the promise of God. When they arrive, they find that Lazarus is already in the tomb. It seems like Jesus is a little too late because this sickness does end in death. Martha goes to meet Jesus and says, if you were here, my brother wouldn't have died. Yet now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. I want to think that she believes that Lazarus can still be saved. I want to believe that in this passage, but I don't think that's what Martha intends. Because look at their interaction. In verse 23, your brother will rise again, Jesus told her. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again on the resurrection on the last day. See, Martha believed in the same thing that the Pharisees believed, believed the popular Jewish tradition, that there would be a resurrection at the last day. And even Jesus taught about this. I put up a couple um, passages where he taught this in John chapter 5 and John chapter 6. Jesus taught about the resurrection on the last day. But Martha's response seems to be indicating that she's thinking, yes, Jesus, I believe that he will rise again, but that's for the future, isn't it? What can be done now? He's already been in the grave four days. So Martha is clinging to hope in Jesus, and she should be commended for her faith here. But she doesn't quite yet understand fully what Jesus means. And I confess that I often do the same. I will limit God's promises to only the spiritual or to only the future, and I'll hold back the power that he has to what I can comfortably and safely manage. Lord, I ask that you would help me to stop limiting you from the physical and from the present. But Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. So Martha's systematic theology of Jesus is accurate. And we can totally understand why she was going to only... um, why she wasn't going to get that he was going to physically raise Lazarus right now. 
Because Jesus keeps going back and forth between spiritual realities and physical realities, physical power and spiritual power. In verse 4, he says, the sickness will not end in death. But Lazarus dies. He meant spiritual. In verse 11, he says, Lazarus is asleep. He wasn't just asleep. He was dead. He meant spiritual. In verse 13, he says, Lazarus is dead. And he means physically. In verse 26, he says, anyone who believes in me will never die spiritually again. And this is what he's trying to convey. The spiritual truth to the claim that he is the resurrection and the life is not bound, nor is it limited to the spiritual, because he has power over physical death as well. And he's demonstrating his power over the physical to put on display the Father's glory and to prove the validity of his spiritual claim of the resurrection to come. Jesus is saying, all those promises about the resurrection, that's possible because of me, because of who I am. He's not merely saying that he's going to bring about the resurrection or that he will be the cause of resurrection, both of which are true, but that he is the resurrection and the life. Without him, there is only death, but with him, life. And this is why we find so many life claims about Jesus, because he is the life. He has that power to give you the magical mushroom one-up, so to speak, because he is the one-up. So those who believe in him now, even if they die, will be raised up in the resurrection. And in that sense, those who believe in him now, the same ones who already enjoy this resurrection life, will actually never die. And this is really exciting. And it ought to be really exciting to Martha. Because Mar he says to Martha, do you believe this? And she says a resounding, yes, I believe. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who comes into the world. And since she believes, we should all be excited to see what comes next, right? You ready for this? Let's read this together. As soon as Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and told him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. When Jesus saw her crying and the Jews who had come with her crying, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. Where have you put him? He asked. Lord, they told him, come and see. Jesus wept. She believed. Where's God's glory? Shouldn't that be the next step? Instead of going straight to glory, Jesus recognizes the sting of death. Mary comes out and says exactly what Martha, her sister, said earlier. Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And now with Mary at his feet, both of the sisters having addressed him, Jesus becomes deeply moved and troubled. The emotion expressed here by Jesus is difficult to describe in just a few words. Um, the word used here for deeply moved is also translated elsewhere as sternly charged in Mark 1, sternly warned in Matthew chapter 9, and scolded in Mark chapter 14. 
So when Jesus weeps, it's not only because of the death of his beloved friend. It's not only because of the sorrow of those around him. But he's also angry. He's sternly charged. He's in part angry at this Jewish funeral custom which mandates that each family is to hire professional mourners. That's why Mary and Martha have a crowd of people mourning with them. They have to hire professional mourners. And he's angry at that. He's angry in part because of the unbelief around him when the life is standing right before them and they're in dismay. He's angry because death and decay was never part of the plan. When God created in Genesis, he called it good, good, good. But sin brought with it death. And he's angry because death still has a sting. Many of you may have experienced the sting of death. Even knowing the reality of heaven and trusting in the word of our Lord, you may still experience anger, confusion. Maybe you've been left with questions. Why God? Why now? Why him? Why her? Maybe you felt like God didn't show up when or how you wanted him to. So what do you do in those moments? Where do you go? If that's you, trust that you're not alone in this. But I think there's something special that we can learn from the reactions of the mourning sisters. You see, in Luke chapter 10, when Martha and Mary welcome Jesus into their home, we see Martha distracted with work, the busyness of hospitality. But in this story, she's running to Jesus first thing. She's the first one to sprint out to greet him. She's grown so much in her trust, in her faith, and in her hope of Jesus. I pray that my faith and my hope will continue to grow as Martha has, to have hope that my first reaction, no matter life circumstances, will be to run to Jesus. And in that same Luke 10 story, we see Mary at the foot of Lord Jesus in happy situations. And here, we see her again at the feet of Jesus in difficult situations. Even though she was wishing he, ho- he showed up sooner, she still put herself at the foot of Jesus. And usually, we'll tend to struggle with one or the other. People will either forget to go to the foot of Jesus when things are good, thinking, man, I'm, I'm just... I'm killing it right now. I'm doing so well. And you may forget to spend time with Jesus and to to thank God for what he's done. Or maybe you struggle to be at the feet of Jesus when things are difficult because you might be thinking, how can I praise the God who does this, who allows this to happen? Let's pray that Regardless of life circumstances, we'll find ourselves at the feet of Jesus, listening, worshiping, and praying in the delight of his presence, merely because of who he is. But lest we shy away from coming to the Lord with our deep sorrows because we think that he won't sympathize us, sympathize with us, John tells us that Jesus wept. And this is a, a powerful moment worthy of our pause. 
We're told in the book of Hebrews that Jesus is a high priest who sympathizes with us, who feels for us and prays on our behalf. What that means is when I'm hurting, I can come to Jesus because he can sympathize with that pain. It's why the shortest verse in history in, in scripture becomes uh, one of the most powerful in light of his deity and his humanity because he is a powerful God and he cares deeply. Now, since we have a God that cares for us, we can rejoice in knowing that he loves and he cares for us. But that doesn't mean a whole lot if he's not strong enough to do anything about it. If he's a good God, but not a great God, how much are we helped? If he loves us, but isn't big enough to do something, we don't really follow a big God. Which brings us to our last point, the reality of life. So they lead Jesus to the tomb, and there's the stone that needs to be rolled away. And Martha shows for the last time in this story that she still hasn't quite grasped what Jesus meant because she hesitates to allow the grave to be opened. But Jesus reminds her, saying, you're about to see God's glory. And we're reminded because of this of what he said back in verse 4 when he said, the sickness will not end in death but is for the glory of God. We can now begin to connect the dots, right? We can see that because Jesus waited to come, an even greater miracle is about to happen. <clears throat> but remember when Jesus arrived, how long was the body in the tomb? Four days. Already dead for four days in the tomb. So Jesus actually didn't have to wait those two extra days, did he? the body still would have been dead if he went right away. So why wait? The glory of God would have still been revealed if a two-day-old body would have been resurrected, right? Maybe four days is more impactful than, than two days. But that's actually part of the reason why he waits. You see, um, many during this time, believed that the soul of the body would linger around the grave for day one and for day two, and then on day three, the soul would go. So for this miracle, anyone who believed that the soul might have been lingering on day one, day two, day three, they would have left no doubt in their mind that this was not a trick but that it was indeed the glory of God. After reading this passage, just personally, I've been praying a little bit more for God's glory to be revealed than my specific requests, because this is pretty powerful stuff. And Jesus doesn't resurrect his friend just because his friends ask, but because God would be glorified and he would be glorified in it. Now we're told that Jesus ends up praying out loud. And we're told that he does this so that people will believe that he was sent by the Father. And then he simply says, Lazarus, come out. 
And the man does. The people around witness the fulfillment of Lazarus' name, which means the one whom God helps. Now, some like to mention that if Jesus hadn't specified Lazarus by name, perhaps all of the dead would come out of their graves. I'm not sure that John intended that here, but I sure hope that if I were to witness this, I'd be celebrating and cheering and praising Jesus. You'd think that everyone would be celebrating and cheering on Jesus and that John would write about it. But he doesn't give us those details. He merely says that many Jews who came to Mary and saw what happened believed. But why not everyone who saw? You'd think that bringing someone back to life would be enough, especially since he waited so long. It seems surprising to me, but it wasn't surprising to Jesus. He knew that this would happen too. We're told about something similar. In the story of the rich man and Lazarus, this is found in Luke chapter 16, where the rich man has everything, and Lazarus, which is a a different Lazarus than the one in this story, he has nothing. And after death, they find that their roles are reversed. The rich man is tormented in Hades, and he looks up to see Lazarus next to Abraham in a good place. And the rich man pleads with Abraham. He wants his brothers to be warned so that they don't make the same mistake that he does. And what's Abraham's response in this story? Abraham says, they had Moses and the prophets. They should go listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said. But if someone from the dead goes to them, then they'll repent. But he told them, if they didn't listen to Moses and the prophets, they're not going to listen. They're not going to be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. And we certainly see this playing out in our story today. Because some don't believe. And even more than that, they run off to go tell the chief priests and the Pharisees who become afraid because of their standing with the Romans. They're afraid that where they stand, the hierarchy of things, they're going to fall. So a high priest prophesies among them, saying that they would be better off if Jesus was put to death. He says this, it's to your advantage that one man should die for the people rather than the whole nation perish. So responding in fear, he prophesied what he believes will protect his people. It's a defensive maneuver. What he didn't realize is that he prophesies more than he knew because Jesus would eventually die. But it wouldn't only be for the sake of the nation, but for the sake of all of mankind. From this point on, they had determined no longer to merely put him on trial because they had already deemed him guilty. So now their plan was a plan of execution as they plot to kill him. Jesus is no longer to be arrested in order to be on trial, but he's on trial because he's already been found guilty. So it becomes, ironically, that Jesus' determination to reveal the glory of God by bringing his dead friend Lazarus back to life 
cements the Sanhedrin's decision to bring about Jesus' death. But it wasn't just their plan. It was God's plan too. From the moment that sin enters the garden, God's plan was that eternal life would be given through the death and resurrection of Lord Jesus. That he would strike the head of the evil one, giving the one who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy a fatal blow and putting death to death. In this way, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection gives life. So our big idea for today is let us hold fast to the one who defeated death and gives us life. See, Jesus' concern for us is the same concern that he had for Martha. She kept coming to Jesus, answering with some theological, abstract truth and belief in him. But Jesus wants more from her, and he wants the same from us. He wants more than just an abstract belief. He wants personal belief and trust in him and him alone. The only one who can provide the resurrection and the life because he is it. D.A. Carson puts it like this. Just as he, just as Jesus, is, um, just as he not only gives the bread from heaven, but he himself is the bread of life, so also he not only raises the dead on the last day, but he himself is the resurrection and the life. There is neither resurrection nor eternal life outside of him. You see, the playful former Mario must rely on a one-up to extend his life, but this power is limited. Unlike this one-up, which only gives you a chance to start over, Jesus gives life, which lasts forever. Even though there was still daylight in Jesus' ministry, the time would come when darkness would cover the land as he was held up on the cross, eventually leading to the grave. But he wouldn't stay there. And when he rose from the grave, it proved once and for all that he is the resurrection and the life. Just as Jesus asked Martha, do you believe this? He's asking you right now, do you believe this? Will you let your faith grow in Jesus to more than abstract truth, but to a personal trust of the only person who can grant eternal life and promises the transformal power of resurrection? If you'd like to make that step today, you can come and see me. I'd love to talk with you after church. Love to pray with you and talk with you about that decision. Let's pray to our Heavenly Father now. Heavenly Father, you are powerful and you give life and you give hope. We pray that you would forgive us as we turn to anything else in our life to give us life. We are grateful for the resurrection power that you and you alone possess. And we're grateful that you offer it to us as a free gift. 
We pray for those who have difficulty accepting this grace, Lord. And we ask that you will soften their hearts to receive you. In Jesus' name, amen.